0: From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 4 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson.
1: Jedidah she was a political theorist focused on empire and decolonization. She is the author of the recently published book World Making After Empire: The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, published by Princeton University Press. Drawing from the political thought of anti-colonial intellectual and statesmen, it offers a new account of self-determination, in which African, African American, and Caribbean anti-colonial nationalists were not necessarily nation builders, but individuals who sought an egalitarian post-imperial world. Adam is a Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science in the College at the University of Chicago. Currently, she's a Fellow in Residence at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Essex at Harvard University. Quince Slobodian is a historian of modern Europe and the world. His most recent book is Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, published by Harvard University Press. Globalist is the first intellectual history of neoliberal globalism. He shows that it was a project not so much intended to reduce government power, but to protect capitalism at all costs. Quinn is an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. He's currently working on a new book project about the far-right's capitalism. Thank to you both for joining us today. The summer 2019 issue of dissent focuses on nationalism, and you have important pieces there. The issue of the whole focuses on a number of issues I've recently been wrestling with politically as well as a scholar. Political crises, the rise of the right, but as you point out as well, left-wing populism. Climate catastrophe, financialization, migration, the politics thereof, and near and dear to the heart of this podcast, the complicated dynamic caused by the interaction of race and class, in this case manifested in the politics of empire, global finance, and the varied left reaction to a world under ever increasing strain due to climate catastrophe and economic, political, and social crises. What led both of you to write about these topics for dissent? I'll start with you, Quinn, as you wrote the introductory essay to this collection.
2: So first of all, thanks for having us on here. It's a great privilege. I think that the impulse for the essay that I started with, and then really the whole section, was a kind of a dissatisfaction with the way that the politics of the moment since 2016 have been framed around kind of a binary, an either or. Either you have something called a world order, liberal international order often. So you either have a world politics, or you have its alternative, which is a national politics. And it seemed just descriptively inaccurate and normatively unhelpful to think about the opposition that way, because so many of the challenges we're facing don't respect the container of the nation and can also be approached in kind of regional terms and must be approached in larger, often continental and even you know, oceanic and global terms. So it was a a desire to kind of, you know, shake the categories that we've been handed and try to disrupt those with perspectives that maybe aren't always read by the average dissent reader, for example.
1: Adam?
0: Yeah, great. Thanks, Michael, for having us on. I think for me, in the post-2016 moment, so much of the conversation about nationalism has been really dominated by debates in the United States and Europe. And from my work and from the longer 20th century history of nationalism, it's really been nationalism in the third world that was the subject of much conversation and contestation. Uh, so for part of uh, the impulse for me was to highlight A different set of conversations from an earlier moment that dominated third world politics is also to make the claim that while these kind of debates are really global debates, they take on different kinds of inflections. They look different when we look at them from different geographic vantage points.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I want to come back later to even within countries like the U.S., How different conceptions of nationalism and different forms of nationalism often clash with each other and have, these arguably, have positive and negative aspects to them. But I want to start with thinking a little bit more about the ideal of nation and populism. Quinn, for example, argues that nationalism in the concept of a nation and metaphors such as a lifeboat are inadequate for the time, are some of the factors that make it so. But Adam also talked about, in the context of the 20th century, anti-colonial struggles in Africa, Caribbean, and elsewhere, that internationalism and nationalism can be compatible. Can, we, can you both talk a little bit about the concept of nation and nationalism and to what degree they manifest today and have both strengths and weaknesses for how we move forward?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, as a historian, I just, I'm always forced to put these things in a particular time and a space. And in the case of the piece that I wrote with my co-author, Will Callison, for the the issue, we were talking about the kind of resurgence of of a certain kind of German nationalism, both from the left and from the right. And in that case, you know, if I'm going to ask ask or myself or answer a question about the use of the nation, I can only think about it in a particular sort of time-bound context. And in the case of Germany, you have a situation where there was a divided country from 1949 until 1989, and then a country that's more or less effectively reunited. But we're sort of only realizing now, decades after the fact, that it successfully reunited on the basis of a certain kind of nationalism a certain kind of shared identity of germanness and that that shared idea, identity of germanness was always in fact from 1989 onward being defined against a kind of intrusive presence from the space beyond europe whether it was turkey north africa iran the middle east and Somehow this wasn't so obvious to us after the first outbreak of xenophobic violence in the early 1990s. But now we realize in 2018, 2019, when people try to stage an opposition to right-wing nationalists and right-wing populists, as they've been called, like the Alternative for Germany or the AFD party, the only kind of available idiom that there is in politics to try to do transformative politics is, once again, a return to a version of Nationalism. So people try to fill the nation with a kind of content of solidarity and workerism and welfare and cooperation, but it still can't get away from its sort of fundamental grounding on these kind of these 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 very specific exclusions of populations, which in some cases have been in Germany for decades. In many cases, have long predated the fall of the wall. So in the case of Germany, I think it's kind of its successes contained the kind of the seed of what are now some of its most corrosive kind of political tendencies. And it's, it's a particular case, I think, to study the, the language of the nation in Germany, as opposed to, for example, post-colonial Ghana, as Adam does in her piece, or Turkey, as someone else does in the in the issue. But when it comes to Germany, you know, of course, it's very, very volatile to try to resuscitate the category of the nation at any level, not just for the optics from outside, but also for the consequences within. So I think that as someone who mostly focuses on Germany, I I tend to skew a lot more skeptical and critical towards any attempt to kind of revive that category than would be the case probably in other contexts.
0: Yeah. Like Quinn, my work is also really historically informed and it draws out of a study of kind of anti-colonial nationalism from 1945 to about the 1970s. So for me, what the anti-colonial story reveals is a way in which anti-colonial nationalists imagine the nation and the international as deeply imbricated and both as sites of kind of Both sides that had to be made politically. So we kind of think that when somebody like Kwame Nkrumah claims the Ghanaian nation, he has a particular kind of imagination of a nation that's predicated on a particular past. And what you find in these, for these set of thinkers, is that they don't really, they imagine that the nation is actually a product of imperial relations. It's a product of the international. So for him, the Ghanaian nation both has to be built domestically, but it also needs a set of international foundations if it's going to achieve the aspiration to national independence. So in this particular case, I trace the ways in which he imagines that Pan-African Federation has to be part of the way in which something like the Ghanaian state or the Ghanaian nation achieves or secures national independence. I think what's really important about this example, or just more generally proliferating the sites we study nationalism from, what we find is that different kinds of institutional formation, say regional federation, even the nation can be vehicles for different kinds of political projects. And this is why I think it's really important to study these concepts in historical context. Because in the absence of that, what we get repeatedly is a set of debates about a good nationalism versus a bad nationalism, as if those two things are really easily disaggregable or disentangleable. And I think we have to be more attuned to the different ways people make demands around both the domestic and the international. And oftentimes what we find is that whatever we take to be the good, normatively good and bad elements of the nation are deeply entangled with each other. So my own view about the kind of anti-colonial project is not so much that we might revive this as a good version of nationalism, but that it provides a different avenue for thinking about what the dilemmas of the nation were and how one particular set of actors thought that those might be overcome or resolved.
1: I agree with both of you about the need to be historically grounded when we discuss these concepts and think about them politically. Um, As you know, my work on nationalism is very much in the context of a very strange case, a case where most would argue there is no nation, black nationalism in the United States. But I think one thing that Black Adam writes about this, uh, Black nationalism in the United States does share with some of the regional efforts in the Caribbean and in Africa that Aidan writes about, as well as with some of the national liberation struggles that dominated the mid-20th century, is that the nationalism was often defined, including within United States, black nationalism within the United States, as being against global empire. And sometimes, at least Peter Lee were also took on an anti-capitalist aspect to them, which I think has led to, in one case, romanticizing these movements and not looking at intake them into both the good and bad aspects within, within each of them. But I think often, at least within the traditional left, sometimes can be quite dismissive of these political projects as well and don't realize the context within which they develop. One of the questions I have is, in this context, whether it's in Germany or the United States or in the global South, is there a type of nationalism that we can imagine that could be effectively challenge global empire, but not just global empire, but also the increasingly financialization, global financialization of capital, or some of the other major phenomena that you identify in in throughout several articles, including mi- migration, and potentially as important, well, certainly as important in a perhaps most important climate change.
2: Well, one of the things that I think is really productive about the way that Adom framed her subject in her book is to say that when we think that we're talking about nationalism, often we're talking about something else. So in the case of anti-colonial nationalism, that focus on the nation, is kind of misleading because what one should be looking at is, as she puts in the title, the world-making project of which nationalism is part. And I think that the problem with the framing of nation, yes or no, nationalism, yes or no, is it can misdirect us from that second sort of shadow concept or category that should be, you know, stalking the nation, which is to say, what is it that the nation is always part of because it never acts on its own. And so I think that the even the the way that our section was titled in dissent was what is the nation good for? And I think we need to keep in mind that there's two levels on which that should be approached. One there's the kind of practical level. So after our event the other night, someone who's an international economic lawyer came up to me and said, "Listen, I'm a leftist, but still, I want to do you know, labor and environmental policy. And right now, the only organizational frame we have, the basis for making collective decisions that has any kind of teeth or enforcement is the nation. So he's like, I don't want to throw away the nation because we need the nation as a kind of a tool. And so at that practical level, it can't be dismissed or kind of dreamed away or talked away. But there's a second level, which is, I think, the level not of just pragmatics and practical policy, but of political imagination, And I think that if we've learned anything since 2016 is that there kind of is no or should be no limits to political imagination because things that seemed intensely implausible one month come to pass the month after, right? So even as we sort of are cognizant of the kind of way that the nation still is an important institutional framework, we need to think about what is that that enormously expanded space that stands behind the nation within which it's doing its sort of practical work. I mean, I'm teaching, I'm starting a class right now that I'm teaching, and we're talking about the French Revolution. And one of the things that I asked the students is about the definition of what radical means, right? And I think I've always taken slightly from the work of Kristen Ross to this idea that, that radicalism is about unpredictability, right? It's about the achievement of things that were previously unthinkable, And I think if we set in advance that the horizon of our politics is nationalism, then we sort of undercut the greatest kind of resource that that radical imagination offers, which is the possibility of something that was previously unthinkable. So I think that that. That is part of the the project here is to, to just sort of express a fundamental dissatisfaction with being caught in the supposed politics of like doability and practicality, because all that has done is given the power of imagination to our opponents on the right.
0: I want to echo Quinn's point and say what you know, I think the what I call in the book, the internationalism of anti colonial nationalism, isn't just something that's specific to the projects that I look at, or black nationalism. So I make this argument that one, this, the internationalism of anti-colonial nationalism takes the form of the ways in which the ideas about what a nation is, how to organize the nation, circulate in this transnational context. I mean, figures like Kwame Nkrumah and others are highly mobile figures uh, who are connected to a broad tapestry of intellectuals and activists in the interwar period. And the idea of what the post-colonial nation is comes out of that internationalist framework. And then the second is... You know, this idea that the nation, in order to be independent, would require an inter- international, a certain kind of international backdrop, that there would have to be world making. But I think the very, that very structure we see also in the kind of white nationalism of this contemporary period and the one that anti-colonial nationalists were fighting against in the early in the 20th century so the deep ways in which nationalism as an ideology as a set of practices is embedded in the global i think really has to be reckoned with so that again that option or that easy bifurcation of the domestic and the international or the national and the international is not really an available option for for us i mean i would say yeah i don't think my my ambitions, political ambitions are staged on a kind of new or revived form of nationalism necessarily. But I do think this point of how do you work at both levels? How do you think uh, in the context of the nation states that we do inhabit for better or worse, even as we think about the ways that those nation states are deeply embedded in, in global structures that are highly unequal? Has to be at the center of our analysis, or the, at least the starting point of an of an analysis and thinking a ways forward on a variety of questions.
1: One of the, I think of the problems with black politics in the United States today, uh, particularly the more official forms of black politics, is that the internationalism that was a hallmark of the twentieth century black political terrain has been suppressed to to a significant degree, except. For, of course, among much of the black youth organizing we see or seen over the last few years. I think one of the problems I have both historically when looking back at 20th century black movements and looking at movements today is when we talk about black nationalism, it covers entirely too much. So there were massive fights among people who were labeled black naturalists in the 1960s and 70s. And one way to think about it is to think about what systems of domination are these different formations challenging? And almost all the ones that were labeled nationalists were, were really challenging white supremacy more than anything else. But some that were also, such as, I say, the Black Panther Party would have or has slogan like nationalist in form, but socialist in outlook, were trying to challenge both white supremacy and capitalism quite, uh, quite explicitly. And I think that term, nationalism, when applied to these movements, can sometimes be, can mask what is being targeted and what is not being targeted. For example, in most of the Black radical nationalist movements of the 20th century, patriarchy was not targeted. Homophobia was not targeted. Those systems of domination were either ignored or in, maybe in theory, opposed but not in practice, or in some cases, enthusiastically upheld. One of the themes that is central to the issue of dissent that we're talking about, some of the issues in it, has been the relationship between nationalism and populism. Can you talk a little bit about what that relationship has been in the specific context that we've been talking about, whether it's the United States, Germany, the Global South, India? What's the form that na- populism is taking today, and what are, the, what are its links to nationalism?
2: Yeah, I mean, I actually wanted to start by just... Departing a bit from what you said at the beginning there, I think that, you know, it's really striking that when we want to talk about kind of insurgent forms of, of black nationalism and oppositional anti-imperialism, often we do end up going back to the Panthers or, you know, Kwame Nkrumah or Julius Nyerere, because the, the, you know, the, the, the vitality of like what Cynthia Young called the, the, the U.S. third world new left was so so visible and striking in that period in the late 1960s and 1970s, the the fact that we keep returning to that period really calls attention to the the vacuum that exists right now, I think, in in political discourse, in attention from even the left in the United States to struggles that are going on in places like sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America even. There are very few people that are speaking in ways that are being heard anyway from those parts of the world and one notices that you know when american leftists for example want to think about something a political quandary or a political conundrum beyond their own space often the attention is they can reach as far as something like greece <laughs> that's about the limits right and there's nothing wrong with that per se but it does really it does really map a kind of a kind of darkening of the the landscape of political attention i think that is quite disturbing actually and and we need to think about i think the way that this attention to populism the way you're describing it and the way ha- that has been used really becomes a kind of a fixation on north atlantic politics above all right it becomes a story of trump brexit the threat of new populisms, whether it's Viktor Orban or Geert Wilders in, in, in Holland or the Dutch uh, social, or the, the Danish Social Democrats, the effect of the political backlash from the right, among other things, has been to recenter attention once again on the North Atlantic white world.
1: I'm just going to push back a little bit because when I think about the move to the right, I'm also thinking about places like India. Mm-hmm. And and Brazil as being equally seeing some of these, which I don't think part is the, the global North Atlantic.
2: That is true. The yeah, I was about to mention that the higher Bolsonaro addition to that crew, but you'll notice that often he gets kind of lumped in as a kind of a copycat. I would say of things happening in the North, despite the fact that I was just talking to someone who does climate work the other day, and he was pointing out that the biggest client for the soil and the beef production that will come out of those parts of the Amazon that are being currently deforested is, of course, China. Yep. So the Brazil-China axis is one that's as important as the as the Brazil-USA or Brazil-Britain axis. So I think it, the reason that part of this has become hard to kind of grapple with for people who are bringing with them the kind of 1960s, 1970s anti-imperialism framework is that China fits in perfectly into that framework, right? I mean, where do we place China if we want to use a kind of new left or post-new left political geography? Is it a kind of vehicle of uplift for the global South? Is it even part of the global South? Can we see it as a kind of fruitful opponent to an American-based economic empire? I think those questions have hardly even been asked, and they certainly haven't been kind of answered conclusively, which leads to—go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say that. I think that one one of the areas where China's role is being really strongly interrogated, I think— Its role in South America is beginning to be paid attention to, but China's role in Africa has really been paid attention to, I think, by both South scholar and activist, particularly with respect to food security, a redivision of the continent a la late 19th century in terms of a new imperial power. And not, and, and, and very importantly, with respect to the military planning of the United States in Africa, partly to counter. China's growing influence. So I think, um, again, I, th- I would agree with you that by widening our view, we can have a better vision of how, for example, China fits into this picture, which is definitely not consistent with how the new left and the new communist movement in the 1970s thought about it. What I think is also the case, though, is that sometimes these discourses are not connected to each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: I do think that this... Like, for those of us especially interested in recovering the history of Black radical thought or Black internationalist thought, you know, how exactly we think about the relationship between historical recovery and kind of critical theory, contemporary critical theory, is a real question. So, say, the framework that the set of characters in my book deploy of of the global color line, you know, for figures like Du Bois and others. States like Ch- China and, and Japan at the time would have fallen on the south side of the global color line. And already, even in that moment, that ended up being a particularly a problematic way of thinking, say, about Japan's role and obscuring Japan, Japanese empire in Du Bois's writings. And so then the question is, how do you think about a framework of something like unequal integration or international hierarchy, a language that they would use, but think about the new role of kind of what third world elites, both third world states, like once third world states, maybe like China, like Brazil, and also the deep discrepancies and inequalities within states of the third world. So we really do have a structure now in which a global elite is highly connected with each other, that disrupts those structures of, of Kind of, you know, global north and south in ways that complicate, I think, a straightforward recovery of an older analysis of the global, of the of of the global order.
2: I mean, if I can just jump in on that, I think that it seems to me that one of the kind of strengths of analysis, but weaknesses of politics for the left, is the way that we often see things through economic lenses. So, you know, if you say as I think is accurate, that economically speaking, you know, all these parts of the world are bound up with each other and you can't just take back control. You can't just exit. You can't just claim autonomy and suddenly be liberated, right? I mean, that's really a conclusion that came through a lot of the disillusionments of the initial moment of decolonization, right? I mean, as Adom writes in her piece, you know, Kruma's policy of a first, the political kingdom, did have a kind of a kind of a, a, a truly radical kind of quality to it in the sense that there was the belief that one through the, the door of, of political independence could achieve a genuine independence that would also incorporate economic independence. But, but of course he becomes then one of the first people to observe that neocolonialism could in some ways be even more nefarious than, than formal colonialism. So the realities of economic interdependence were kind of realized very quickly by, I think, you know, left and progressive observers of the world. And now I think our handicap is when we, is when we look at the world situation, we often default to a kind of a fatalism or, or a kind of uh, a negative pr- pragmatism in the sense that, that we see that the, the interlinking and the interlocking of, of spaces is something that is indissoluble and permanent. And therefore we kind of it, we, we divest ourselves in advance of some of the very helpful slogans of politics that the anti-colonial politicians were always happy to take up right so now it's the brexiteers who are sounding a lot more like Kwame Nkrumah as someone like um, kojo Karam has pointed out in an excellent op-ed for dis- for dissent so they now sort of have this language of we want to have control in a world that's you know denying it to us and we look at the figures and we say, but the world of financialization suggests that dot, dot, dot. And they say like, well, look who just won the election. <laughs> right? So I think that there's, the, the, I understand the instinct to, to stage a kind of like left populism or left nationalism, because it's kind of saying, Hey, that's our line. That's our line to be able to say, we want autonomy in a world governed by capital. How is it that the people coming from the city of London and the financiers have managed to capture that language, which really rightfully should be our own but i think that's then the challenge is how can you kind of acknowledge interdependence while also producing an effective political language of autonomy and that's just not easy
0: i mean i want to add to this that you know i think another kind of insight of the anti-colonial period is like to, to ask this question what's the kind of actual political goal like if it's democratic self rule which it was for the set of thinkers or economic equality that they then they were able to think that the institution they could be flexible around institutional arrangements like could imagine different configurations of nation and the international or different ways of thinking about global governance that might get you closer to something like self-rule or or greater economic equality. And so it seems to me that part of what we get hung up on and part of what's made possible the rights capture of, say, a language of autonomy is, is this being kind of handicapped by the institutional form rather than thinking more thinking about a, a, a kind of debate about what actually these institutional arrangements were supposed to guarantee us in the first place.
1: So I would like to talk through these questions within three practical political phenomena of our time. Maybe we can start with, given what we just talked about, talk a little bit about the left, at least a section of the left, attempt in Germany to try to recapture some of this language and build a movement from above. And also talk about migration and how we should think about migration politics in this context. As you may or may not know, yesterday, the lead editorial writer for the New York Times has accused the Democratic Party's candidates of being way too soft on immigration and say that they're going to turn the election over to Trump if they don't get harder on immigration policy. This is the same day, of course, that Trump banned Black Bahamians from fleeing the ravages of Hurricane Dorian. And then I also would like maybe to end by discussing these questions in the context, in the context, excuse me, of climate change and catastrophe. So maybe we can start with the effort of some leftists to try to build a populist, nationalist, movement that takes the ground back from the city of London types. Sure. In,
2: In the German case. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think that the, again, it's such a, it's a German particularity story in a way, right? Because no matter how much of a believer in the people you are as a German leftist, you know, enough German history to be a little bit afraid of what the people might end up doing. And so I think that there's like baked into German political memory, a kind of, fear of the masses en March that you don't have in the case of France, for example, right? Where there is such a strong, positive legacy of the mobilized people, where even the kind of bloodiest parts of the French Revolution get kind of alchemically transformed into the founding myth of a, of a, of a more liberal and a, and a more freedom-loving nation. So when the Germans that I talk about in the piece who are a kind of faction of the left or the Linka party tried to do a populist movement a la Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, a la Momentum, the kind of left labor contingent in Britain. They wanted to do populism. They wanted to do grassroots movement, but they wanted to also co- sort of keep an eye on it and control it to a certain extent. And so instead of a kind of outbreak of Gilet jean style kind of, you know, traffic stops and rogue violence in the countryside, what they did was they rolled out a very nice website and they had a quite closely controlled kind of a email forum and an email list. And they thought very carefully about their logos and their hashtags. And all of this ended up kind of draining whatever vitality might actually come from a, so-called populist or grassroots movement. So just at a kind of a formal level, it was already a little bit satirical as a kind of, you know, humorless German rollout of what a kind of chaotic, you know, improvisational grassroots insurgency should look like. Then in the matter of the content, there was a definition of the people as this kind of unemployed, rural, you know, precarious, but definitely always ethnically white german probably living in the east sort of authentic population that was the ones that were that were the ones that were being left behind and needed to be appealed to because they were seen as the ones who were drifting towards the right and so there was a there was a there was a desire to fashion a message that would be attractive to that rural precariat and the solution that this aufstehen or stand up movement came to was to kind of demonize The people that they, in their minds, thought that these rural, sometimes unemployed or underemployed people also disliked. So they were like, well, who are the hate objects for these for these people sort of living on the edge, the equivalent of kind of Rust Belt underemployed voters in the United States. And so they said, well, that must be all of these young, know-it-all, overeducated cosmopolitans living in places like Berlin, eating shawarma and wearing, you know, self-made clothes, hanging out with Danish graphic designers and British ravers, and all living some level off of the social state in a way that seems exploitative to the, the rural, underemployed people. And those people in the city are also the ones welcoming with open arms, you know, the arrivals of Syrians and Eritreans and people arriving on trains from the East and the South. So to make an effective populist politics, they thought, following the work of some political theorists like Chantal Mouffe, you need to have a kind of outside to the people. So you need an other, an enemy, and they decided that the enemy would be basically young urban hipsters and the migrants that they loved so much. And this is an insane strategy, actually, and and not only because it's totally undercutting the possibilities of a kind of cross-class, cross-ethnic, cross-racial, cross-country political coalition, but also because it becomes indistinguishable from the position of the far right itself. And all it did, and this everyone saw this happening right from the beginning, is it just legitimized certain positions that the far right were taking and normalized their language even further. And so the far right vote share rose in the last election in those regions where the Aufstehen movement was trying to catch purchase. And nobody wants, you know, if you, if you set up a politics that's anti-migrant, anti-cosmopolitan, then why are people going to take the light version in its supposedly left version instead of the quote-unquote real version in its right flavor? And so people have simply continued to cluster towards the alternative for Germany party. And this attempt has effectively dissolved without effect.
1: You've talked about this as an example of German particularism. And I see the aspect in terms of the distrust of the people given the history. But a lot of it also reminds me of what's going on elsewhere. So if you drop the words left from what you described, it sounds exactly like the Make America Great movement, both in terms of who's being targeted, the myths of the real American being the Southern Westerner, the Rust Belters, the Midwesterners, and the uh, Rugger Westerner, and everybody else, including people who've been here four to five hundred years, I guess four hundred years, sixteen, nineteen as we all know now, are not part of that. And you can and that's how the right this movement here, but it sounds exactly, I do agree, it sounds like an insane strategy for the left. But even here, there are those, as you point out, liberals who also want a type of conservative nationalism, going back to traditional values, as well, and to put on the outside those who, quote-unquote, support identity politics and are part of identity politics movements. The sort of cultural wars in the 90s, there was many on the left. Um, I'm thinking a people like Todd Gitlin and people who call themselves conservatives, I mean, excuse me, call themselves liberals. That was definitely Freudian on my part, like Mark Lilla, who were certainly, I would argue, provide cover for what we see today.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that critique of identity politics, you know, we should focus on class, not bathrooms or whatever, is something you hear on the kind of, in the democratic space in this country. But I think that the wisdom of the Bernie campaign, for example, has been to allow itself to be moved on this. Because if you listen to Bernie Sanders in the 1980s or 1990s, he's got a bit of that, right? I mean, his opposition to things like NAFTA was often saying, keep the jobs here. We care about America more than, you know, why should we care about these other countries? I mean, it's part of his rhetoric in certain ways. And I think, you know, we saw the confrontation he had with, Black Lives Matters activists in the in the in the campaign and so on, and it seems to me that he that he's learned, you know, he's allowed himself to be pushed and moved by social movements, which is what a good politician of the left should do. And it's to his credit, I think, that he hasn't adopted any of this kind of identity politics critique. That basically lives and dies on the pages of the New York Times op-ed page, right? I mean, it doesn't have much of a presence actually in American leftist discourse, and often Germans are surprised to hear that they think that Mark Lilla must be some kind of a prophet of progressivism in the United States, and and I can you know happily disabuse them of that.
1: I wish I was as optimistic as you were. I'm thinking of what I do think we see is I'm thinking of certain political scientists, and specifically. Those who claim that everything is all about class and that even protesting against police brutality divides the working class. So I think there's maybe a bit more of that in the left, including the self-described black left, than maybe you're giving credit for. Let's move and talk a little bit about the politics of migration, because that's certainly something that is capturing attention in this country and many other places as well, including in places like South Africa, where there's been lots of violence against migrants coming in from other parts of Africa into South Africa. So one of the authors, E. Tendayi Chiyume, she argues that the history of colonialism, exploitation, expropriation, theft, murder, and undermining of sovereignty in what she calls still the third world, means that migrants from that region should not be barred from first world countries as a matter of justice and specifically distributive justice. How does that play out in today's politics in various parts of the world? Both her stance, policy stands specifically in the politics of migration, whether it's in some place like South Africa or the United States.
0: I mean, I wanted to just say one thing in relation to the earlier conversation, uh, which hopefully will tie into the migration question, which is I do think, you know, if there's like one language that the left should not give up on, it is the language of for the many, the language of populism in some sense, not to say that we should do it in the form of, of the kind of left nationalist populism we saw in Germany, but I think both the Sanders campaign on a national level, but the kinds of projects that the say something like the Working Families Party is engaged in on much more local context in the United States, give us possibly a model of thinking about how one would build a kind of multiracial, class-based coalition that's that directs its its kind of ire at you know fin- the elite, the economic elite of the country, and so. For me, that holds a lot of promise. But I think as a lot of people have written, including Aziz Rana and others, you know, part of what seems to be missing around the revived left in the United States is a real vision of international policy. What is an American foreign policy of the left? How might we think about questions like migration and a kind of from a left perspective? And it's seemed like Bernie Sanders has moved a lot, but it was just a couple of months ago asked about the question of migration. He very quickly defensively said, I'm not for open borders. And it's like, that's not the kind of question. We're not at that. That's not the question really. So I think what Achuemi's piece does in, in a really powerful way is help us have, help us think about how we might think of migration at, in a in historical context as a the current con- you know, migration crisis as part of a long history of interaction, exploitation and domination. And I think it gives us resources, say, to think about the U.S. border crisis in a different kind of way as well. These aren't just cultural and national strangers who show up, but groups of people who this country has had long systemic interaction with. So I think on that front, it is really powerful. And I think, you know, the question, though, is again the ways that like migration to the first world dominates so much of our thinking about migration. I mean, the real most refugees, say from Syria or any other humanitarian crisis, never show up on the d- doors of Europe. Most of them are absorbed within the regions, the countries closest to them, already very weak states. And so, I mean, how we might use this model she develops for th- rethinking. Those kinds of migration patterns within the global South, I think, remains a, a large question for me.
1: I think that's, that's a critical point. There has been some news articles over the last couple of days about increasing tension between Venezuela and Colombia along their border. And there's various reasons for that, but one of them is a refugee flow from Venezuela into Colombia this caused certainly in part due to the economic downturn of Venezuela caused by the U.S. boycott and sanctions, and those type of flows within between countries and in those regions are something that is very much not thought about in the mainstream media, and and as you you say, is not described and discussed enough in the left either.
2: Yeah, I wanted to add on the on the Achiyume piece, which I think is extremely strong and interesting, is that I think, you know, one of the virtues of thinking historically is you can kind of denaturalize things, right? You can take assumptions and shake them. And one of the standard, I would say, assumptions of most people, at least in this country, would be that it's totally normal for states to restrict entry to their countries, to their territories. That's just a standard thing that states do. They've always done that. And someone might point out that you know, the passport wasn't introduced until the First World War and there was effectively free movement in the 19th century. But that seems so distant that it's sort of like, well, yeah, that was the olden days. But anytime recently, when have people been able to just move from one country to another without, you know, getting a proper visa and so on? And one of the advantages of looking at the history of of empire and, and post-empire, as, as she begins her piece by doing, is you see that those 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 borders were often a lot more fluid and a lot more recently than we might otherwise realize. So it was in up into the 1970s that people from former British colonies had permission to come and work and reside in the UK. Even now to this day, I, as a Canadian citizen, if I show up in the UK and start to live there, I can vote in the elections right and i'm not uh and i wouldn't have to be a citizen of britain but as a kind of member of the commonwealth i'm able to kind of take advantage of that that historical connection so you have the example of empire of people moving from the metropole to the colony and back the historian fred cooper argues that for him The freedom of mobility within the empire was one of the most startling and kind of lasting disruptive legacies of empire in in a potentially good way, as well as a, a negative way. The example of the European Union is even more stark, right? I mean, people who say that it's totally natural that all states control their borders only have to look at the actual existing European Union right now, where someone from Greece Can move to Frankfurt, can move to Paris and begin to vote in local elections, can, you know, effortlessly get an apartment and begin working and receive social services in that place. Right. So that that we are actually in the middle of uh, an unprecedented historical experiment in human mobility. It's ongoing right now. It has been for the last 25 years in its most recent form. And I think what someone like Achiume does in her piece is just encourages us to expand that framework, right? Just as it seemed implausible that someone from Hungary would just pull up stakes and go start working in Dublin the next week. I mean, who, if you you told that in 1980, would believe you? You say, well, you know, that would seem as futuristic as flying cars. So one of the things that 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 a, a careful reconstruction of the historical past that gets us to the present and then allows for a kind of imagination forward which is i think what her work does is it it helps us to kind of unpick and smash a lot of those things that just seem like the way they've always been and for the new york times to say that we need to that the democrats need to kind of go hard on on immigration for for vote share is just un you know unthinking their own position as recently as five years ago right when everyone said that the future for the republican party was the hispanic vote and if they didn't go softer on immigration they were going to vanish as a as a political presence because of demographic change i mean how is it that we have allowed ourselves to be captured so much by the rhetoric of the right that now we assume that that's just common sense and the law of nature when it was so recently otherwise
1: and of course, all borders are not created equal, so I'm pretty sure the New York Times wasn't talking about being harder on the northern border and keeping people like you out uh, <laughs> so the racial hierarchies are also reinforced in these as part of this global empire as well, and both explicitly and implicitly in many cases. Mm-hmm. The penultimate topic for discussion is one that is I think beginning to grab the attention of everybody it is another, another one of these issues that can bind the left together in ways that Aidan was talking about earlier, which is the status of catastrophes related to climate, which are quite widespread across geopolitical boundaries, but still affect those who are most vulnerable in devastating ways. Why was there such an emphasis in this issue on questions of climate change and climate politics?
2: Well, I guess maybe just because it's something that illustrates more starkly than anything that there's no possibility of exit, right, in practical terms. Uh, In fact, I wish I had come across this before I wrote the introduction. I would have mentioned it. But there is a right-wing libertarian movement called Clexit, meaning exit from climate, which it's kind of the most beautiful like Freudian symptom that I've ever heard of. So they believe that you can somehow get out of uh, out of the problem of climate by exiting from international climate agreements like Paris and Kyoto. And then, you know, dot, 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 sequestering yourself in uh, militarized, privately defended strongholds, maybe doing a little bit of geoengineering here and there, at which point the kind of the smile fades from your face and you realize, oh, my God, there actually is Clexit, <laughs> Right? That there are people who, for sometimes plausible reasons, believe that they are going to be able to escape the effects of this. And, and then you realize that that is actually the baseline assumption of what most people in the richer countries, is that whatever is going on globally, we're going to well, a little more flood insurance, move to higher ground, do some, you know, put in a new seawall in the Boston Harbor Right and, and sort of and sort of fix this for us and and um, and it'll be sad that it won't be fixed for everyone. But the world has always been unjust and and that's you know simply an insoluble problem. So I think that uh, you know we all contributing to the issue don't feel that way. We do feel like strongly compelled by the need to come up with some kind of way of operating through this that won't be that drastically unequal. But then the question is what that. What that should look like and can look like, and what kind of what kind of categories can be arrived at to to help make that more of a likely outcome.
1: I wanted to the, what to what degree, if we have the type of internationalist perspective that Adam's been arguing for, both through this past hour that is tenable at all. On one hand, I think we're facing certainly questions about food security throughout. Africa and much of the rest of the many parts, other parts of the world that's going to be exacerbated by climate change, as important, if not even more important, the possibility of water security. And what I think we may see happening, and it'd be interesting to see how those who think they can buy their way out of climate change react, is that we're going to see wars fought over these these resources, food resources, water resources. it's going to be very hard, I think, to be the sort of libertarian billionaire unless you're talking about just five people on an island that doesn't have any resources anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things for me that's really important when thinking about where, where and how we might uncover new forms of internationalism is really to look from below. Like the set of figures I look at in the book are now, of course, canonized, but at the time, you know, in the in the early days, were on the margins. And f- so, for instance, in the contemporary moment, after Cyclone E-Day hit Mozambique and Malawi earlier this year, you know, largest cyclone, I think on record, over 1,300 people killed Massive destruction in the region, you saw a kind of climate activist from the region calling to question the role of ExxonMobil in the region. The hardest hit regions in, in Mozambique are just you know, miles from where ExxonMobil is in the in the midst of looking for oil in the sea, right? And so Exxon made some paltry contribution to donation for recovery efforts and they use this language of you know pay your climate debt right like that the, that Exxon mobile not doesn't just have to make a kind of contribution a charity donation but really that they that they and others like them have transformed the conditions of the country in such a way that not only were they hit hardest hit, but that they couldn't recover from the process. So I think one interesting third world, broader third world conversation that's happening right now is about how to redeploy the language of debt, who owes who what for what And you see this in this in simultaneously in the Caribbean with the reparations movement so I think that seems to me to be one possible node of thinking kind of revived internationalism, one that's also much more directed at corporate power than as, as much as it is kind of North Atlantic states.
1: One of the earlier podcasts centered on grassroots movements in Puerto Rico, mobilizing against U.S. financial institutions in the wake of the hurricane that devastated the region a, a few years ago. So I think that yeah, that is definitely one of the areas that we see growing mobilization.
2: Can I just add something to sort of to what, to what Adam was saying? I mean, I think there's a kind of Pascal's wager here too, right? Like, you know, even if you don't believe in God, you should act like you do because it, the consequences will be huge if he does exist. There's kind of a version of that, which is I think even if you're a reformist, even if you just want this is status quo to be reproduced, then it makes sense to make more radical demands now. And the reason is that the center and responds to radical challenges. So you can see this happening really in real time in the UK right now, especially, where people are rolling out, like on the left, far left wing of the Labour Party, strong demands for kind of worker ownership, redistribution, challenges to corporate power, and basically in fear The mainstream business community represented by something like the Financial Times is sort of saying like, whoa, 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 how about we meet you halfway? Right. And then they come out with some kind of reform, which actually does get closer to some kind of worker control, if not going as far as the demand has been made. And the same is happening, I think, with things like the Green New Deal. Right. By making these kind of maximalist demands. Then, you know, the next week, the Bank of England does roll out a kind of like a climate model saying, no, no, don't worry, we're paying attention to this. And of course, their solution is never going to be enough. But the more radical demands are made, the more that the, the sort of the center shifts towards that, that radical, you know, necessary option. And I think that, it, you know, the the response to these kind of these isolated incidents, which will become ever less isolated and ever more frequent is really important to 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 be produced in a kind of not a catastrophizing narrative, because I think that this language of resource wars and climate refugees often is trying to provoke people to action out of a kind of a fear of the incoming hordes. And the fact is that the people who study this realize that actually climate refugees will be less common than people who are just killed by climate where they are, because it takes resources to leave, actually. And so more people will be locked in than pushed out. So even if you are acting out of a kind of compassion for people who live uh, distant from you, then it doesn't make sense to mobilize on the basis of do it now or else. Right. It, It only makes sense to kind of mobilize on the basis of, you know, this is for the best of, of, of all of us, not in a kind of attrition logic, which is what I fear I saw or what I really did see in the, in much of the left populist response, which is like, you know, build the wall, save the welfare state within, because that's the best we can do under 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 the the pressures of, of resource constraints and human mobility.
0: I mean, the other thing I would say, especially, I think that's particularly exciting about something like the Green New Deal, is the ways in which climate policy is integrated to a broader vision of the economy and yeah. society. So it has a vision of kind of housing and urban, the, the city, a vision of how we might live, not just, uh, you know, how it's not just that we might protect the climate, but or an avert disaster, but actually, this would be a form of life worth living for everybody. So it's really a project that feels, you know, connected to a broader tradition of, of left thinking.
1: So my last question is an unfair one, you both just wrote, two acclaimed and critically important books everyone should read, Adam's Rulemaking After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, and Quinn's Globalist in the Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. What are your next projects? What are you working on now?
2: <laughs> I mean, the thing I'm working on is kind of, a, I guess, a sequel to the book that you just mentioned. And it's trying to look at the strain of kind of radical capitalist thought and so-called neoliberal thought that was not interested in sort of scaling up and building kind of locking in multilateral institutions like the WTO or international investment law, but was interested in scaling down. And so in the night, in the wake of the the fall of the Berlin Wall, a lot of libertarians and, and radical capitalists started to get excited about separatism, secessionism, They started to see the dissolution of the European Union rather than its creation as the thing that would be the fix for global capitalism and personal enrichment. So I'm trying to sort of make sense of the so-called backlash since 2016 as a kind of acceleration of capitalist imagination rather than a retreat from it. And that involves rethinking things like the Brexit campaign and the rise of the Austrian Freedom Party and Alternative for Germany. And finding the roots of, for example, Trump's economic policy in the kind of vulture capitalism and distressed debt markets of the late 1980s and and 1990s. So just trying to kind of, it's, it's a sort of make sense of what's happening on the right moment project and one that I hope will, you know, have some kind of uh, immediate sites of enlightenment for what we're dealing with nowadays.
0: I'm actually turning to what I think will be a prequel to this book <laughs> titled Empire of Emancipation. And this book thought about the problem of racial hierarchy and unequal integration on the global context through a kind of geopolitical terrain. It was primarily focused on forms of unequal sovereignty and the ways anti-colonial nationalists sought to overcome it. But I want to turn to think more about the political economy of, of racialized global order, and in particular, around late 19th and 20th century debates around slavery and free labor in the African context. So during the scramble for Africa, and actually throughout the 18th, century, 18th and 19th century, abolitionist visions for the Americas were deeply tied to a project of imperial expansion in Africa. And the idea was that you could do in Africa using quote unquote free labor, what you had done in the colonies, in the American colonies using chattel slavery. Actually, a lot of an interesting narrative published in 1789, makes a very early kind of argument for this in in arguing for the colonization of Sierra Leone. So it's really to trace the connection between emancipation and imperial expansion in Africa and to trace the ways in which labor gets racialized and Black labor gets globalized in this particular post-emancipation context.
1: I look forward to seeing this work when it comes out. Thank you both very much for an extraordinary conversation and an important one.
2: Thank you, Michael.
0: Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. Again, that's raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at racecapitalism to stay up to date with what's happening with the project.